and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where two humans compulsively read history and then join together and tell each other what we just learned. And we may or may not be eating cheese sticks. <laughs> I'm Teresa. I'm Angie. I have the cheese stick. I have the jealousy. I brought you one too. Yeah, you didn't mail it to me in time. And you don't <laughs> want to mail cheese because it, especially the ones that need to get refrigerated because then it gets all sweaty and slimy. And look, I'm just, I'm not here for that. In case you're wondering, people aren't. this is a history podcast, not a how to ship your cheese in the mail. But if it was. I mean. <laughs> Teresa has the knowledge on how to ship. I have the feelings. Cheese, I mean, I know? may or may not have looked this up before. I don't blame you. I mean, it is a. I mean, we'll think about it. how do people get a part of those cheese, cheese of the month clubs? They have to ship their cheese. Well, they do. They do. And I, there's also like different ways you can preserve things like like cheeses and stuff like you can do certain things and then like dip it in wax covered in wax and like you know really do that kind of preservation aspect um i guess that's what those people do i have never my my family just gets me gift cards as opposed to cheese club so you can spend it on whatever cheese you want at where the store you want yeah so i can get that instant gratification and not just wonder if my darby sage is going to arrive safely in the mail that's fair there was okay so random side cheese story which i didn't think i would ever tell um when <laughs> I'm i am so excited <laughs> when i lived in japan the department stores had grocery stores attached they were typically in the basements um and so if you wanted to get like a step above what your standard grocery store had you know you wanted to find the nice crackers you wanted to find the nice whatever it was you could go to the department store and go to their grocery store to, to get that. Well, also the department stores would also have like seasonal events where they would do all kinds of stuff to like drum up things. Um, the nice department store had what they called the British fair. And so they had a bunch of like British goods and British foods and British, you know, whatever the, the, the heck. And Japan as a whole doesn't do cheese, right? They, when you go, like here, you go to the cheese aisle and you've got quite a bit to choose from. It's not as cool as what I what I see happening in England and France and and whatnot. But you know, we we've got we've got cheese in we've Japan. Got you've got Colbert and you've got um, like some shredded white cheese that doesn't melt. Oh. It is, it is like, that's uncomfortable. <laughs> exactly. Like you don't know what it is. It's just labeled cheese. Okay. It, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a bag of confusion. Um, Literally. Yeah, it, you know, these are things. So imagine my surprise and joy when I go to the British fair and they have a cheese sampler paid and it's $50 and you don't make a ton of money, but you buy your $50 cheese plate and you put down nearly the entire thing that night. I am proud to know you. <laughs> I mean, and there were cheeses that I had access to that I'd never heard of. And I was so thrilled to really treasure each one. I say treasure as I also say things like I inhaled, you know, like. That's tre treasuring. Yeah. You were yeah. fisting it, but whatever. I mean, like. You wielding the the sheer 
like it, it was girl dinner before girl dinner was was a trend where I just sat down in on the floor of the tatami mats in my living room and just compulsively just took nibble after nibble after nibble of every type of cheese and going around in a circle and being like, oh my gosh, that was great. Quick, quick, bite the one to the right. Um, yeah. I like that my cheese stick brought you a happy memory. Yeah. And of course I was single in Japan. Why do you ask? <laughs> okay. Um, I'm just going to tell you that me and the man, before we had kids, and we still do it a lot when they're both out doing things, um, we were big charcuterie boards before charcuterie board was a thing, yeah. you know, like that's what we ate for dinner all the time, meat and cheese and like grapes and carrots. Mm-hmm, and we would mm-hmm. just sit, you know, we'd put it all on a platter and sit on the couch or wherever and just lounge. And it didn't occur to me until about a year ago that I was like, wow, um, what happened to my, what happened to my meat cheese dinner? Why did we have to stop doing that? <laughs> oh, because children, they require No, you just make meals. <laughs> them have the, the raw broccoli that you put on the plate that you never really intended to eat. Oh, I like the raw broccoli, though, so. I mean, I do, too, but after the other stores have been exhausted. <laughs> okay, okay. You I'm, know? Right, yeah. Like, after, you know, my 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 jeans tug a little bit and I go oh yes hello yeah okay fine I will give you a couple pea pods if you insist yes yeah, since apparently <laughs> you're going to judge me rude I purchased you you should be on my side right <laughs> um do you want to hear my story of Make course sense. okay so um to tell in order <clears throat> In order to tell my... I just got so excited that I wanted to tell you my story right now. I I, I know I'm here for... I, I don't know if you understand this, but I, I joined. I hit record. I stopped talking because you were looking somewhere else. So I didn't know if you were... No, I, like, it's because I was, I was almost knocking over a water bottle and trying to, you know, hedge off <laughs> a myriad of sounds. Like a cacophony of sounds. If, if you, you will. will. Gotcha. Okay. Well... Um, so I am going to tell you the story of an item that I learned about just over a year ago, but in order to give you that story, I actually have to tell you about, are you ready? The Battle of Hastings. 1066. Yeah. Thank you, Helen Duncan. All right. (laughs) I'm here for it. Okay. So, um, my sources are the Bayou Tapestry Museum. A World History Encyclopedia, the Encyclopedia Britannica, a BBC article on the claimants to the throne, and um, a Britannica article on a gentleman called Baron Vivant Denon, um, who I only have a source for because I was so curious about why he was even worth mentioning. But that'll come later in the story. So I, too, am now wondering why he's (laughs) worth mentioning. I'll get there. I'll get there. I promise. But before I get there, I like I said, the amount of times that one of us has mentioned 1066 and I have managed to keep my mouth shut about this particular topic. is kind of ridiculous. So you've been (laughs) researching this in the background while I've been bringing up that number. I've been 
I wouldn't call it researching as of until the last two weeks as I've been as I would call it more like casual reading oh okay that's interesting oh I didn't know that oh look I learned a new thing that type of thing but not like hard you know you're not chasing down the rabbit trail but you're just yeah. meandering down the path it, yes in fact okay so then I finally decided like we have reached the time of year where talking about like a tapestry and um I don't know it just invokes the idea of wanting to be warm and so I thought I'll wait till it's cold enough outside so uh, while it is not entirely cold enough I really want to tell this story <laughs> so here I am um so in like I said in order to tell you about the Bayou Tapestry I first have to tell you all about the Battle of Hastings because I feel like not telling you that full backstory at least in like timeline form kind of diminishes the um idea of why the Bayou Tapestry is so important. I mean to be fair, so- I really don't know anything other than the year of the Battle of Hastings. Okay, so excellent. So I figured I wasn't sure how much you knew about it and I'm not sure how many of our friends at home that are listening are like attuned to this part of history so i did my best to give a real concise like without a lot of flamboyance um detailed timeline account of the battle of hastings so here we go um and i'm going to tell you this reads like a modern day soap opera script it's freaking ridiculous but basically it goes like this Edward the Confessor, he's the king of England from 1042 to his death on January 5 of 1066. He dies without an heir, which, had he had one, would have created a clear line of succession, right? Right. But because he died without an heir, that's not the case. So this leaves England with a handful of claimants to the newly empty seat. Um, first, we have his closest living relative, which would be his great nephew, Edgar the Aetheling. The Aetheling? Aetheling. Aetheling, like, okay. A- like okay. yeah. Um, okay. He is only 14 years old and has neither been supported or prepared for the role of king. So he's out. Like, <laughs> everybody knows that if he's crowned, it would take... A matter of 37 seconds before one of the other claimants was like yeah no actually that throne's mine and then and then roused him out right so he he would be voted most likely to die right um which is funny because while he is um kind of removed from the story as a whole right here it does mention at the end which i didn't actually put in my notes but <laughs> after um, the events of the Battle of Hastings, he was peacefully like dealt with. And I don't know, I wanted to look into that further, but I didn't. I think it just simply means he like was retired to a country house. But I'm unclear. So if anybody knows I can that be peaceably dealt with. Just for the record, I'm putting this out here, knowing that it's being recorded. Should you try to get rid of me, I can be just put out to pasture in a nice country mansion. Uh, yeah. With uh, a, you know, a re- retirement fund. Yeah, thank you. Please and thank you. Um, can you have my ice cream delivered every Tuesday? Um, I'm like I said though, unclear. I I didn't spend a ton of time on him simply because the story is so massive. Um, but I am curious to know what peaceably dealt with means. <laughs> I'll have to look that up and get back to you later. 
So anyway, he's out of the running. Here's where we enter Harold Godwinson, who, as far as I'm concerned, could be considered the antagonist of the group. (laughs) He's from Wessex, which, as we know, is a portion of England. And Wessex is one of, actually, if not the largest of the kingdoms of England. And um, a huge proportion of the English population would have sided with Harold Godwinson. Um, He's a wealthy nobleman. And just so happens to be that his sister was married to King Edward. So he's got the the, the rights of being the brother-in-law to the king, right? Okay. It's claimed that on his deathbed, Edward the Confessor kind of whispered in Godwinson's ear that he was the heir. That's very easy to say happened. Be like, you know, I would like some ice chips. He said I'm going to be his successor. And in my imagination, that's similar to how it happened. But who knows, truthfully. Um, so so we have er- Harold Godwinson. And then we have, from the absolute, did not see this coming at all, Harold Hadrata, who... <laughs> excuse me, Harold Hardrada, who was a Viking and king of Norway. He was also at least a contemporary of King Canute, who had previously been the king of England, Norway, and Denmark, and the second husband to M of Normandy. I'm going to stop talking about them right now before I get beside myself, because I literally love them. Um, so anyway, I don't think we Harold. have a single episode where you don't say, I love him, so them, it. It's true. Like I have that, a lot of love inside of me. I feel like that would be our drinking game. You would take a shot every time <laughs> Angie says, I love, I love him so much. It's true. You know, I have a lot of love and a lot of heroes. It gives me a wide breath with which to work for my own personality. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> I just, I just wanted to be like, you know, this is something I recognize that you do. You love. I do. I love well and I love big. Um, Okay, so anyway, Harold Hardrada has the support of a fellow named Tootsgig who is happens to coincidentally be Harold Godwinson's brother. (laughs) Uh The BBC article has this to say about their relationship. Quote, the two brothers had fallen out. Tutsig had rule had been the ruler of Northumbria since 1055, but people rebelled against his rule. The rebels said Tutsig had been a selfish and strict leader. Harold Godwinson had advised Edward the Confessor that he should support the rebels rather than his own brother. Edward agreed, and Tutsig was replaced as the Earl of Northumbria. Okay. That's an awkward and Thanksgiving right there. Super awkward Thanksgiving. It is also worth noting that at this time, there were a number of descendants of previous Viking invaders still living in the north of England. And um, they would have had the support. They would have been supportive toward Hardrada's claim to the throne. And last but not least, coming from the continent, William, the Duke of Normandy. Uh, Normandy is a large swath of beautiful land in northern France. William is a distant relative of Edward the Confessor and claimed Edward had promised him the throne in 1051. Now, when I tell you distant relative, what I mean is that Edward the Confessor is one of Emma of Normandy's sons. Emma of Normandy is William's aunt. 
So there you have that. Um, now I'm, he... you say that, and it's like I, I, I'm, I'm frantically looking up. Okay, yeah. So this is 1066. Okay, so uh-huh. he, the, the, the person coming from Burgundy, Normandy is Normandy is a dis, like you know is in that whole. Um, wait, no, that was scratch it. I was trying to relate it to Fredegan and Brunhild, but I recognize that they were the Morovian dynasty and it was the ones that came after them. Okay. So So getting, I tried to get all of our stories to line up and they don't, it's different (laughs) dynasties. But sort of on the same page. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so where am I? I'm sorry. I lost my spot for a second. Um, okay. So Edward, the confessor. So William, the Duke of Normandy, claims that Edward the Confessor had promised him the throne back in 1051. Now, he has a bit of a beef with Godwinson because in 1064, Godwinson somehow got stranded in Normandy and promised to help the Duke take the throne after Edward. So, I don't know if that means like, hey, buddy, if you can get me back home, I'll bend the knee to you when Edward dies because I know he's already claimed you as as his heir, or I'll help you take the throne. It's yours. I'm not a problem. I, I don't know want, who I Edward has as the heir. Pretty much, yeah. Um, but needless to say, William has a serious beef with Godwinson. So, on January 6, 1066, the day after the Edward the Confessor dies, the Witten, which... Um, for anybody that is unclear on this, is a group of powerful men who act as advisors to the king. So they meet and they decide who should be crowned. The Witten can include um, clergy members as well. So you're dealing with both people of secular groups and religious um, uh, type thinkers in this group of people so they get together and they decide that harold godwinson should be crowned and his coronation takes place on the exact same day which is wild to me but there you are there's no planning there's no like could you imagine the royal kitchen like i did uh, we we quick going to town grab any chicken you can find uh, that's exactly what i was and i was just thinking from the perspective of godwinson's wife like um excuse me i don't have a dress for this <laughs> But anyway, just tell the um, painter to paint something fabulous. You can change your 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 painting later on too. You can be whatever you want to be Tuesday, but today just whatever you got on, it's great. Let's call it good. Um, so now you can imagine this super pisses off William of Normandy and Harold Hardrada. So they each decide separately that since they had not been given the English throne by the Witten, that they are simply going to have to invade it and take it by force. I mean, this, I, I mean, as you do, right? Um, that's mine. I want my ball back. I'm, I'm bringing dress for the job friends. you want. And I'm wearing a crown. So, so there, there you go. Um, so September 25th of 1066, Harold, this is absolutely wild to me. Harold Hardrada and a force of 8,000 to 10,000 Viking warriors land and invade the north of England. They That's advanced quite to a York. Few people. Just, just a handful, you know? They advanced to York, and at this point, they have defeated the regional forces of both Mercia and Northumbria, 
and their troops are bolstered by supporters from Scotland and Northern England. So can you just imagine that horde? Yeah. Like, that is wild to me. So they are... Wait, and you can understand, most of these people don't really care. They're in an outlying village. They're never going to see the king. No, they're, they're just... Maybe they have a beef against Godwinson. Who knows? <laughs> like maybe he previously raised their taxes in Wessex. I don't know. But the, anyway, so having learned of this, the newly crowned king, Harold Godwinson, who had been waiting in the south of England because he's anticipating an invasion from William from France. Because, you know. I mean, that checks. He looked at a map. Right? And he was like, oh, I pissed that guy off. I, I know I did um, because I told him he could have the throne and I just kind of took it. It's all lips. Um, oops. So he quickly, and I mean quickly, marches his army 185 miles north and reaches Harold Hardrada's men in four days. And this completely takes Hardrada's forces by surprise. That's an impressive hustle. I'm not even going to kid. Yeah, uh, like, oh, 185 miles in four days. No, thank you. Um, The BBC says that the, quote, the two sides went to battle at Stamford Bridge just outside of York. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle recorded that a Viking warrior blocked the bridge, stopping Harold Godwinson's army from crossing. I need to know how big this man is for science reasons. One of Godwinson's soldiers floated under the bridge in a barrel and stabbed the Viking through the slate in the bridge, allowing the rest of the army to cross the river. So basically, they did the dwarven barrel trick from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, Um, that's not a move I would have seen being, you know, inspired by history. But like, okay, but my question is, how is it? One man standing in the middle of bridge blocks an entire army. But anyway, I think it's I mean, fantastic. I love the imagery. I'm here for it. Honestly, you have to be pretty scary. Like I'm imagining, imagine this is, you know, bef- like in the dark, in the middle, e- the medieval area or era. And you have like somebody Aud- Ozzy Osbourne-esque standing on the bridge <laughs> and you come up and he just rips the head off of a bat with his teeth. He'd be like, an axe in each hand, right? I'm out. Like, I'm out. My mom's calling. Uh, she's got gotta, the plague. I gotta. I, go. I gotta bounce. Yeah. Bye. Uh, yeah, I gotta go pay my mortgage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so there's that. Um, after the violent battle, Harold Goodwinson is victorious. Um, both Hardrada and Tutsig were killed. Hardrada takes an arrow to the throat thus you come back from that no do you take an arrow from to the throat and just be like that's just a flesh Mm -hmm. wound or is that is that game over it's game over for him and unfortunately also ending the great viking age which i was a little bit sad about it had Um, to go at some point let's be honest but the remainder of his army was allowed to return to norway so that's pretty cool. Um, now, now I give you the Battle of Hastings according to the Bayute Museum. The morning of October 14th, 1066, William divided his forces into three groups. The Britons on the left flank, the Normans in the center, and the Franks and the Flemish on the right. 
Archers, foot soldiers, and cavalry were organized under the Duke's leadership. He placed foot soldiers armed with arrows and crossbows in the lead, foot soldiers in the second position, but safer and equipped with hubercks. I forget what those are. I meant to look that up. I apologize. Hubercks? H-U-B-E-R-K-S. I knew what they were, but I've completely forgotten. H-U-B-E-R-K-S? H-A-U-B-E-R-K-S. Okay. Um, and in the rear, there's a squadron of cavalry. He it's a piece his... of... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It's a piece of armor covering only the neck and shoulders, but was later consisting of a full-length tunic. So it basically, like, a think of a chainmail shirt is what it grew into. Uh, okay. Whereas okay. the uh, neck and shoulders one uh, just kind of... You know, like the the yeah, the the, the chainmail turtleneck. <laughs> perfect, perfect example. <laughs> I mean, um, if you, in case you're wondering what to get the man who has everything, <laughs> uh, we can point you in the direction of a really nice Etsy shop. Um, <laughs> so, in the rear, the squadrons of cavalry. He takes his place, William, the Duke of Normandy takes his place in the midst of them with the elite. From there, he's able to direct from all sides using both voices and both voice and gestures. Um, I say he can use both voices, so he had two? Did he talk out of his ass? No, he just higher and lower. (laughs) But anyway. Hello, whatever you are. Right. That little section is from a writing dated in 1073 about the event. Um, That's fairly contemporary. Right. Harold's troops approaching under the cover of woodland took up their positions on the top of a hill. The high position and the the Battle of Hastings, um, all of that information, I, I don't know if I mentioned this, so I'm just going back. All of this information comes from the Bayute Museum itself. Um, I figured they would be the most relevant source for my topic, so that's what I went with. Um so anyway, sorry. Harold's troops, they use the woodland for cover. They take up their positions on the top of a hill. This high position allows them to harass any soldiers attempting to climb the hill by throwing a variety of things at them before pushing them back into hand-to-hand combat. So I like this concept where they literally just have bags of debris that they're just going <laughs> to fling at their opponent. The uh the word that the museum chose to use was a variety of missiles, which gave me the image of like a Sylvester Stallone type character literally just chucking a missile. And so I could not go with that myself. <laughs> I mean, it, but it's like 1066. So they don't have scud missiles. They've got rocks. <laughs> right. And maybe like some maybe caber toss, you know, like maybe they're throwing telephone poles. Um I would but run. anyway, you throw a telephone pole at me. I I'll just I'm I'll out. send a yeah. messenger next time. Yeah, it's cool. It's fine. Um, also, I'll shoot him a text. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As the Normans struggle to dislodge Harold's soldiers from the hilltop position, they suffer severe loss, making the battle turn in the favor of the Anglo-Saxons, i.e., Harold and his men, um, Godwinson. At this point, a rumor is spread that the Duke himself has fallen in battle. So, some of the Norman troops retreat back towards the sea, and they're pursued by the English, who at last leave their positions on the top of the hill. 
While watching this, William must have realized what had happened, and he is very much alive, does the most baller thing ever, and rushes before his companions, removes his helmet so that everybody would see him and recognize him. The Norman horsemen return immediately to the front, and they seize the edge in battle. Which... That is very movie-esque. Like, I I know that is in the Riders of Rohan, kind of. Absolute move, right? Um, Now, even though I myself see Godwinson as the antagonist here, I'm not going to discredit him because he, too, fought on the front line with his horsemen. Um, But he was covered in mortal wounds and died that evening. And William and his men emerged victorious, right? And yeah. they head for London, where on Christmas Day, 1066, he is crowned. So now we've um, got two kings. Nope. Well, Harold is right. dead. That's true. He that is, that helps. He, he succumbed to his wounds at the battle, that the evening of the battle. Um, it is worth noting, because I thought this was just a wild number. William of Normandy crossed the channel with 8,000 men and 5,000 horses. That's a, a thousand longships crossed the channel. And that's not even counting Hardrada's what he traveled with. This is just um William the Duke of Normandy, or as we know him today, William the Conqueror, right? Like that was such a wild vision in my mind of five thousand horses crossing the channel. And Where it you even me find such... that many at that point, you know? Like well, so Normandy is super wealthy and they have a massive swath of land in northern France at this time. Um so I don't imagine for him that was actually a hard concept. Um it it was probably not and he's also got Flemish soldiers and a handful of other near near areas that are working with him. So I don't think for him that that was um too wild to assume that could cross the channel but visually for me all i could think about was the dothraki oh <laughs> crossing the sea and yeah. came to thrones and i was like i hmm, wonder how they thought how the horses thought about that but anyway so that is a shortened uh straightforward timeline of the battle of hastings which i had to give you in order to tell you the story of the tapestry which I'm headed to right now, but my notes are long, so I've got to scroll. So, the battle, excuse me, the Bayou Tapestry is a medieval embroidery depicting the Norman conquest of England in 1066. It is both remarkable as a work of art and important as a source for 11th century history, which I think is fabulous. The tapestry itself is a band of linen 230 feet long and 19 and a half inches wide. It's now light brown with age. Um, embroidered in 10 colors of wool thread, are you, which are it's the 10 colors of wool thread are used to depict 626 characters and things such as 37 buildings, including Mont Saint-Michel, which I think is amazing. Mm. 41 ships, 202 horses and mules, and um, often these uh, these images are given the the effect of perspective. So, like, when you're looking at it, it's like you're looking at a painting, um, which I think is absolutely amazing. 
the story on the tapestry begins with a prelude to Herod's, Harold's visit to Bosham on his way to Normandy around 1064 and ends with the flight of Harold's English forces from Hastings in October of 1066. Originally, the story may have gone on longer, but the end of the strip is gone. So we don't we don't know what happened after um, Harold's death on the on the linen. Um, the top and the bottom run decorative borders with figures of animals and scenes from the fables of Aesop's and I'm going to jack this up Phaedrus there are scenes of horses and the chase and occasionally scenes that are related to the main pictorial narrative which I thought was pretty cool it has been restored more than once and in some of the details the restorations are doubtfully done like they they took some liberties yeah um, I if you want to share screens, I have found you some images. Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I was hoping you were going to do that, so I didn't have to do that on my lonesome and like you know hope you didn't hear the clickety clack of my keyboard. Nope. Let me share my screen with you. Are you seeing the the correct image? Okay, so for those of us playing at home, there is a, a section that um, it's two horizontal frames stacked on top of each other it is a uh, beige background but who knows what it was at the beginning before you know a millennia um <laughs> lots of browns and oranges there are horses running both from both sides into battle with um foot soldiers in between it is you- incredible do you see the um dead lying on the the lower? Oh yeah, on right on here? the bottom, <laughs> like on the bottom runner or ba- edge border, are the dead bodies, which is exactly what I would put in any tapestry <laughs> that I was making. Um, right. Here's a close up. You can see now, some of the. I the will firing. say that having, you know, listened to a couple of pod. I mean, th- the needlework's incredible. Um, having listened to a couple podcasts on like. Um, Mary Queen of Scots and her needlework. Um, the thread that they were using during Mary's time was pretty thick, and so you didn't get a lot of detail, just because mm-hmm. you you didn't have as fine of thread to work with. So to know that you have a lot of that detail that you can see, like she, that there's a. Uh, man, no, just to keep the case. So she's showing me a picture of a man next to his horse or a horse. I don't know if it's his horse. And he's got like armor on or a uniform of some kind. But there are triangles of like brown and blue. And they are very minute and very well done. And so like, I'm just looking at this point. That is well, that is, yeah, there's a lot of artmanship there. Right. Um, So here's a couple more. I love this this green and gold kind of imagery given yep and there are horses that are parked on their necks <laughs> um, they, um they've they've been knocked over in battle yes yeah, so they are um, mid-roll um yeah you can actually see the soldier right here falling off yeah falling off of his horses his horse is you know sitting on his booty with his head flipped back behind him in a yoga pose um <laughs> coincidentally this is also the invita- the invention of western yoga um yeah didn't know uh, that <laughs> downward horse and uh fallen warrior 
Fallen Warrior is going to be my new favorite pose. <laughs> um, I mean, Downward Horse is mine. This is my favorite um, image. You see Mont Saint Michel in the top right. Yeah. I think it's it's absolutely stunning. Um, so in this image, I one of the things that I think is special about it, besides the cathedral and the island itself, is that on the horses, and again, you can see the men in their armor, you can see the varying shades of triangles to denote the color change, but the horses' manes are very detailed as well. It's just such an interesting uh, take. Now, what's... Um, What's really interesting about this is it is called a tapestry. However, it is an embroidery. Um, they didn't. They didn't. You know how tapestry would have been done with the, the wool tool, the loom. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I couldn't think of the word. This was done as embroidery, which I thought was really interesting. That it's called a tapestry, but it is not. But that's well, its is name, so, so. Are they are. saying? Are they saying tapestry just because of size? Because you could embroider a shirt. You could embroider socks. My understanding is it is called a tapestry, I'm assuming simply because of its size, but that typically tapestry is done with a loom. This was not. But it is 216 feet long, so. That took a while. I'm just, I'm just sure going to say. Right? Okay, so um, I think I showed you all the images. I did. Um, and those are just a small selection of the images you can actually go to the Bayou museum website and see some pretty significant um, information and detail on it, which I think is really cool. Um, and again, I said this piece is really important because it celebrates both secular history, but it has been staunchly protected by the church since its inception, which I think is really interesting to note. Um, like I said, the Bayou Tapestry tells this epic, literally Western world-changing story in the wool thread embroidered again on the linen cloth, and it reads like stained glass windows. Um, it's considered both an epic poem and a moralistic work. <laughs> the museum tells us that some of the of some of the scenes which depict the crossing of the sea and the longships, the cavalcades of horses, shields, coats of mail, fantastic creatures, the battlefield. And it gives us in great detail the event, like unfolding before our eyes, which I think is really fantastic. Uh, move along, move along. Now, it is worth noting this. Odo, who is one of the characters that's named several times on the Bayou Tapestry, um, <laughs> Odo and William have the same mother. He, they're half-brothers. And he owed his appointment as the head of the Bayou Diocese in 1050 to William. So, like, big love right there, right? Odo is loyal to the Duke through and through, and he takes part in the plans to invade England and fights alongside his half-brother during the Battle of Hastings. It's um, generally supposed by historians that Odo had the Bayou Tapestry made to embellish his new cathedral at its cons consternation in 1077 exhibiting the tapestry in its all of a sudden i can't say this word constructed cons it's holy place consecrated <laughs> thank you consecrated building provided legitimacy for the norman conquest of england so exhibiting the tapestry in its consecrated place provides legitimacy to the norman conquest of england interestingly enough while it was commissioned by Bishop Odo, there is a um, like oral traditional belief 
that the tapestry itself was crafted by Queen Matilda and her ladies-in-waiting. Like I mean, the Matilda, Matilda, Flanders, Matilda. I don't know anything about her. Oh, I'm an exciting. uncultured swine. I'm so excited. I'll have to I'll have to bring you that story too then. Um but there's no one knows for sure if that's actually true, but it's fun to think on, I guess. I mean, um, who else would really do it though? I mean, you get a bunch of women who don't have TV, they're not sitting around listening to podcasts on true crime. Oh, right. And embroidery is one of their um skill sets. So, I kind of don't put that past being the truth. It makes sense to me. What they do know for sure is while they cannot guarantee that it was her and her ladies in waiting, they do know several sets of hands were involved. And I think that is fascinating. Like, how in the world would you know that? You can, I mean, they do. Well, it's okay. So, you look at brushstrokes and you can see this person has this kind, they hold the brush like this, they always flow in this angle. Like, this is the thing you're going to get that level of um, dexterity even with a needle. Which, I mean, makes sense. But when you think about, like, I guess it kind of blew my mind when you think about the fact that this is over a thousand years old and it's not painting but needlework and they're still able to tell, right? I mean, you're right. Like, the dexterity and the art, the craftsmanship that goes into it is is definitely um, individualistic. But it all flows together so well. And I think that's the part that blows my mind. That how would you be able to know it's not I mean, one person, but rather seven people, let's say. I, I think if I, like hearing you say it, I'm like, well, I mean, as I'm doing embroidery, listening to you, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, that makes all the sense in the world to me. You know, I've seen a couple of tutorials. I'm like, oh, they do it just a little bit different, um, you know, than how I just naturally picked it up. But I think if I were learning it, I would have the same level of wonder and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you say it. I'm like, yeah, this checks. Yeah. So there you are. I know nothing about this is all I know about embroidery. <laughs> so there's that. Um, so interesting. In the inventory of the cathedral treasury, it is dated all the way back to 1476, included on the list of artifacts, which I thought was pretty cool. So we have kind of a paper trail of its um, existence. It was hung in the nave once a year. During the rest of the year, it was kept in a wooden chest in the vestry. The masterpiece thus remained in the Bayou Cathedral for seven centuries. Wow. Almost entirely unknown. Um, there, So no other document mentions it until the beginning of the 18th century after the revolution in 1794. The Arts Commission for the Bayou District seized it, which I think is so stupid, on behalf of the nation to ensure its protection. Because apparently being kept safe in the Bayou Cathedral for 700 years uh, wasn't enough, I guess. Okay, but this is also the time where the British are touring around the world and saving, liberating artifacts from a variety of places. So I will say it's cool that they at least had to liberate their own crap, too. <laughs> well, so in this case, this particular artifact is purely Norman. Oh, so they went to France. Yeah. Okay. So, no, you're right. You're right. So okay. this artifact was created and consecrated for the Bayou Monastery in, or the Bayou Cathedral in Bayou, Normandy. I okay. should have said that in the beginning. I don't think I did. No, I mean, you. But see, normal people would go, do you see the cathedral in the background? Be like, oh, yeah, that's in France. 
but I'm an uncultured swine, so. Well, and in your defense, that particular cathedral I was talking about is not the Bayou Cathedral, so there's that. <laughs> um, So there's that is going to be the title of my podcast today. <laughs> so where am I? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, so the, um, like I said, the the Arts Commission for the Bayou District seizes it on behalf of the nation, ensuring its protection. According to a well-established local tradition, it was almost caught, cut up in 1792 to make covers for soldiers' carts, but luckily was saved by a local lawyer who refused to let it be removed from the Bayou Church, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, at the beginning of the 19th century, however, the interior minister requested on November 15th of 1803 via the prefect of Calvados that the Bayou tapestry be sent to Paris to be shown at the Napoleon Museum for a few days. The tapestry was sent by stagecoach and then displayed in the Apollo Gallery at the Louvre from December 6, 1803 to the 18th of February 1804. That's just a few days apparently. <laughs> um, which I guess in my time frame that totally is. It's possible Napoleon himself used it and saw it as a propaganda tool as he was preparing his invasion for England. So, we don't know, but maybe. Um, and this is where I had to look up this gentleman. So, I have an excerpt from Vivian Danon's um, writing. And I should mention, this is what I had to look up, because it was really interesting of why he was even relevant to the story. But he was a French artist, writer, and diplomat, along with, as well as being an archaeologist. And in a museum official who played an important role in the development of the Louvre collection. In 1798, he joined Napoleon Bonaparte on the expedition to Egypt. And there, quote, made numerous sketches of the ancient monuments, sometimes under the very fire of the enemy. The results were published in his travels in Lower and Upper Egypt, 1802. Whoa. And in 1804, Napoleon made Denon the director general of museums a post he retained until 1850. In this capacity, he accompanied the emperor on his expeditions to Austria, Spain, and Poland. And here's where this man just absolutely gets me. And advised him in his choices of works of art to pillage from the various conquered countries, most of which ultimately reached the Louvre, end quote. That one's cool. <laughs> I want that one. And I would like that one. Can I, can, hey, um, I think that one Dad, needs to be liberated. The, can we, can we? Yeah. I've got a nice space on the wall at home. Right. Um, so colonial right there. Thanks for that, buddy. Um, cause those works of art weren't doing just fine in their home countries, but that's, that's fine. In his shoes, um, I would not be any better. I'm going to be honest. I have an I'm army thinking, at my back and a wish list. I can get all the ones I want. Thank you so much. Um, so anyway, he says in a later, in a letter dated, um, the 20th of February, 1804, that was sent with the tapestry when it returned to Bayou, quote, I am sending back to you the tapestry embroidered by Queen Matilda, wife of William the Conqueror. The first consul was very interested to see the precious commemorations of our history and congrats and congratulates the townspeople of Bayou on the care they have taken to preserve it over seven and a half centuries. Whew. So at least he's super impressed and he gave that one back. Um, 
From 1812, the tapestry itself was kept in the Hotel de Ville, which is the city hall in in the Bayou. It was generally hung and displayed to the public in September of every year. And if visitors wished to see it outside of September, the custodian could show it to them by rolling it out gradually on a table by turning the crank handle of a winder. Mm. Right? This way of exhibiting it was described on several occasions by British writers between 1814 and 1836. Um, By 1842, however, it was permanently put on display in the gallery, which I thought was pretty fabulous. Um, so I think this is, this part's really special. Many connections that have been made between the Bayou Tapestry and the Normandy landings, there, there have been many connections made, excuse me, between the Bayou Tapestry and the Normandy landings of 1944. There is a most notable example on the front page of the July 1944 edition of the New Yorker, where the D-Day landing in Normandy is described in the form as uh, in but in drawing form in the style and color of the thousand year old embroidery and it is beautiful i have a copy of that too and you can actually see churchill <laughs> like it's jack pretty... churchill the one with the sword or winston <laughs> oh uh, jack churchill was crazier you're right i'm sorry no you're fine you're fine but both there you are go. cool so there you can see the... Um, oh, the that same. is neat. So it is the cover of the New Yorker. Churchill is uh, featured with his big old cigar. And then... <laughs> and then you have the king. <laughs> yep. And Who who's coincidentally the... oh, just looks like the king from Hamilton. <laughs> you're not wrong. Yeah. Is that not Eisenhower back there? I might That's what I was presence. thinking. That's what I was thinking. And then on the other side, who is that? There is just an Axis soldier and another dude with a... Bray. Yeah. Yeah. So... um, I'm sure if you were looking at the New Yorker in real time, you'd be like, oh, I know exactly who those two people are. Right? So... Ah, I'm trying to get my... There we go. There is a plaque that commemorates this saying, We, once conquered by William, have now set free the conqueror's native land. This inscription is on... That just gives me the chills. This inscription is on the memorial of the British Military Museum erected at Bayou by the British government as a tribute to the Commonwealth soldiers who perished in the Battle of Normandy during the summer of 1944. And that's the story of the Bayou Tapestry. So wait a minute. When I ended up coming to you with this big old long story about World War II with Colin Gubbins, you literally had a like a World <laughs> War II tie-in. I did. Wow. You can imagine how I was literally sitting on my hands trying to keep my mouth shut because I was like, but 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 I have a really cool bow. Oh. <laughs> so that's the the quick version of the Battle of Hastings and the story of the Bayou Tapestry. And it has its very own museum that houses the tapestry in a way where you can literally walk around the room and view the whole thing. It's pretty fabulous. That would be so awesome. Right? It's, it's, it's pretty remarkable to, um, to, to see some of the images. And I think to see it in person would probably be even more powerful. I think that's why it really speaks to both it being cared for by the church but it being secular history makes it so important because it is a first um narrative 
document, right? Like, this was created not long after the Battle of Hastings. So right. we're seeing, like, a first source as opposed to a journal entry from 300 years later about what they thought happened. Now, that does also mean that it can be embellished to tell an epic saga by the winner because the victor writes history, but that doesn't make it any less valuable or important. And I think it is just, it's my favorite. It's my favorite tapestry. I don't know if, you have, if you're allowed to have favorite tapestries, but that's my favorite one. <laughs> you can. I can't say that I've ever uh, looked at enough of them to you know come up with my favorite but now i want to so now we have a new goal to look at look at tapestries starting with the bayard there you go that's my story that is exciting i had no idea that it exists (laughs) neither did i until about a year ago when i was i can't i was listening to a podcast and for the life of me cannot remember who this like what the show was or it might have been like a history channel like 10 minute blurb type thing you know but i was like wait hold on that sounds fascinating so i immediately like stored its name in my brain and started looking at pictures and started like realizing the history that surrounds it is history that is still so relevant to today even though it was over a thousand years ago and the best part of this story as far as I'm concerned was talking to my wee son about it when I mentioned that it's it catalogs the event that changed the world as we know it like the world would be so different if it didn't happen and he was like that's crazy that that happened 10,000 years ago uh and I was like no but your your date's off a little bit but I don't know like uh 800 years but it's fine And then he did the math and was like, you're right. <laughs> I know. Cute, I mean, to though. be fair, that back of the napkin math sometimes gets you astray. And he was playing a video game mid-sentence. So the whole multitasking thing for a 12-year-old. That's yeah, pretty decent for a 12-year-old. No, he did great. Usually he would have been right on top of it. He would have been like, that's 8,852 years ago. Blah, blah, blah. He would have given you the down to the minute exact date so i think that's why it was so funny to me because he was ten thousand years off <laughs> i laughed too awesome. loud and the cat just mean mugged me you know that's a cat's job truly that and to knock stuff off the counter very true very <laughs> very true <laughs> Well, I love it. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, If you've enjoyed this episode of Unhinged History and you're thinking, good grief, I can't wait to see how they tie. I mean, we've tied Battle of Hastings into World War II. So just join us next week where we circle back and we talk about the creation of ancient artifacts in Mesopotamia with the rise of the Incan Empire. If we could do it, (laughs) I think we could do it. I think we could do it. And on that note, goodbye.